We're going to be talking about schools of interpretation today that are going to be directly related to uh, Revelation based on what we've been going over. Um, and um, let's go over some of the stuff real quick so that we can tie it off and then jump into how what we've been talking about with regards to covenant theology and typolo- uh, topology all actually matters in the way that you read Revelation with regards to school of interp. So, topology. What did, we, what did we understand about topology? What do we know about topology? What is it? And why does it matter? Huh? Oh. It's symbolism. It is a symbol. Uh, it's a person or thing symbolizing or ex- exemplifying. And here's the key. It's not a one-on-one. Symbology usually has to do with one-on-one, okay? Topology usually has to do with characters or qualities, okay? So, for example, what is, what is, the, uh, what is the typological symbol of the temple? Huh? Okay, yeah. What does the garden typify? What's the point of what did, so we go back to the created order. What, what did God do with man in the garden? He communed with him. What does tabernacle mean? To dwell together. So what is the typological picture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The reestablishment or the glorification of God dwelling with man. Okay, so it's a concept. That's why throughout Scripture it says they will be my people and I will be their God. That's an indication of the communion. That's why that's, that phrase is repeated through the Old Testament. And I will dwell with them and they, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will dwell with them is the topology, the antitype of the tabernacle, the type of tabernacle. Does that make sense? So sim- sim- symbolism typically is a one-on-one. For example... Um, the Antichrist typifies or symbolizes something specific, okay? Um, so they, they get mixed and blended quite a bit, and I'm probably not explaining it the best way, but I wanted, to underst- wanted you guys to understand that the big thing about topology is that it looks forward. It's always looking forward. What is typified in the Old Testament is has an anti-type or an antitype in the New Testament, okay? First Adam, yes, promise fulfillment. And that's the way to, to best understand it. Um, often, additionally, often a type is messianic in its nature. And Paul draws on that quite a bit with Adam as a type, right? Hebrews, what does Hebrews draw on? as a messianic type, Melchizedek. So, starting to sink in. That's awesome. Um, Because now when you read the Old Testament, you can move forward and look for typological antitypes or antitypes in in the New Testament. Um, And I found a scripture, and I, I... Believe it or not, I had no idea it was there. It was in 2 Corinthians 3. It says that to this day, because they do not believe in Christ, a veil still lays over their eyes with regards to the law and the prophets. 
What that means is, is that Jesus Christ is the key to the interpretation of the Old Testament. All right? So if we do not look at what's going on in the New Testament, we don't understand the Old. That's backwards from dispensationalism. Okay? So that's, that's an important uh, concept to keep in mind. Typological interpretation is specific to, uh, specifically the interpretation based on the fundamental theological unity of the two Testaments, whereby something in the old shadows or prefigures or adumbrates something in the new. So this is why covenant theology is a big deal. Because we understand the two Testaments to represent one story. Not two separate dispensations that do not have anything to do with each other. All right? It's a continual story. So that's important because Revelation now can look back as you read it on one story. We don't have to try and figure out how to read into it two separate salvation plans for two separate peoples. Because it's one and the, the tree that Paul, or the olive tree that Paul speaks of in, I think we talked about this last week in Romans, is one tree. It's not two separate trees. One didn't die in another planet. It's not replacement theology. It's the expanding of the tree. The wild has been grafted in to the one plan to make one people, Okay? All right, so we've already talked about it. Some examples of tip, uh, topology in Scripture are the garden, Adam, Melchizedek, Israel, the tabernacle, Moses and Joshua, Elijah, Egypt, and Babylon are all types. The last one being very important to our understanding of Revelation. All right, a quick overview of dispensation. Dispensational hermeneutic, just to keep it fresh in your mind, as we have seen, the dispensational hermeneutic unavoidably produces the following. Ready? A dichotomistic or a dichotomistic understanding of the Old and New Testament. Two separate dispensations. By definition, it requires it. An irreconcilable distinction between Israel and the church. And in addition, between law and grace. It creates theological anomalies, especially in the dis uh, disciplines of soteriology and Christology. Salvation and what we understand about the finished work of Christ. Okay? Additionally, because of its insistence upon a literal interpretive model... And its principle of using the Old Testament to interpret the New, dispensationalist understands, now this is where we're going to go to Revelation, so stay with me. Prophetic, apocalyptic, biblical literature, they understand it chronologically. They understand it in a future tense because it is a next step dispensation. Demonstrates no continuity between creation and new creation. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. I never once heard a story, never once heard the term new creation. Never once. Uh, 
Because there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no understanding of God intending to redeem what he originally created. The idea in dispensational theology is to make it all spanking brand new. Yes. Well, I don't know if they ignore it. I don't think they have a theology for it because of the way that they understand dispensations. Creation is never understood as any, really anything but a story. Well, they understand that, yeah, they, and they teach that now, but they can disassociate it from the Old Testament. There's no, there's no connection. See, the way that Paul brings about the new, the new creation, by bringing about the person who, is, who was the forerunner of the new creation, the second or last Adam, ties it back to the garden. There's none of that when, when I grew up. There's no understanding of why God created the way he created and the redemption and glorification of that. So, um, does that answer your question? Okay. Um, it's centered on, the, on national. This is the key. It's centered on national Israel, the nation of Israel. And it is person, place, and thing specific. Does everybody understand what I mean by that? It's person, place, or thing specific. It means it tries to draw parallels to current events from what's said. The Antichrist must be. Babylon must be Rome. The, uh, the, the, the false prophet must be Take your pick. Okay? So it draws one-on-one, it's a one-on-one specificity. Okay? So that's, that's dispensational hermeneutic. And when we get into millennial concepts, which also fashions a great deal about what we understand in Revelation, you'll realize that this all has impact on the way you understand a millennial. Just curiously, does anybody understand if I say the millennial reign. What do you understand by that? Okay. Do you hold that thought? Okay, well, I was just checking. <laughs> because that is the predominant thought. That is the predominant that is exactly what that's associated with. That's historic and premillennial. Both. Okay? Anybody else have a concept? I say the millennial reign. What do you think of? Interestingly enough, there's only one, ver- one uh, text in all of Scripture that talks about it. Okay, how do you think of that? Part of it, okay. Yeah. Okay, um, interesting. Uh, anybody else? Millennial kingdom. Okay. So when we start to talk about that, you're going to see how the millennium, a quick 7 to 11 verses, depending on how you read it, in Revelation chapter 20, affects a great deal of what you understand about God's 
concluding plans. So we'll talk about that next week. Um, covenant hermeneutic. A hermeneutic produces the following. So like I did with the dispensation, I'm going to tie in exactly with the covenant her- hermeneutic. So I'm going to follow the same exact pattern. So those of you who took notes, you can follow the same pattern. Uh, the covenant hermeneutic produces the following, an emphasis on the unity between the Old and New Testament in its understanding of both being the single historical account of a single covenant. Anybody remember what the name of that single covenant is? Starts with a G. My wife. There you go. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, it emphasizes the unity between the Old and New Testament in its understanding of both being the single historical account of a single covenant. Yeah? Good. You bet. Number two, it recognizes a biblical continuity I'm going to use this word just because I actually do. Um, And a salvific progression or a progression of salvation. Um, So let me read it again. Or recognizes a biblical continuity and a progress of salvation or a covenantal unfolding, right, between law and grace and between Israel and the church. So it actually coordinates the two instead of separating the two. Point three, it concurs with the soteriological or salvation truths of one plan for one elect people accomplished through the once-for-all finished work of Christ. Make sense? Let me say it again. Okay, I'm getting the look. I'm going to just say it the way I wrote it. It concurs with the soteriological truth of one plan of salvation for one elect people accomplished through the once for all finished work of Christ. Okay, everybody got that? Okay, good. Now, we're go- additionally, because of its inherent top- topological understanding of biblical themes and its principle of understanding the Old Testament in light of the New Testament revelation, covenant theology understands prophetic apocalyptic biblical literature to be thematic, Now, but not yet. You are saved, but you are being saved. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But it has not yet. But it is. It's called inaugurated eschatology. Understands the new creation to be the glorification of the original good creation. Okay?
It centers upon the seed of the woman, the incarnate Son of God. Ties it back to Genesis 3.15. And it is symbolic. It is symbolic. So it understands eschatological or apocalyptic writing to be symbolic, not specific. Okay? Anybody need me to do that again? So it contrasts, I just contrasted the two, covenant hermeneutic with dispensational. Now, with that in mind, let's see how these affect the way people read Revelation. Now we're going to start funneling it down to, to the way we understand Revelation. How many of you have read Revelation since we started the class, just, just for fun? Not yet, okay. Let me encourage you to do so a couple of times before we actually start hitting the text. It will help because I, I want you to start seeing some of the things that we've been talking about in Revelation. I'm sorry? I think that's, I think, and to be really honest with you, the statement was said we're all avoiding it for those of you listening at home. Uh, but I think that that's pretty indicative of the church as a whole. We avoid the book because we don't have a hermeneutic to understand it in, right? So I'm giving you a hermeneutic so you don't have to be afraid to read it because it's the only book in the entire Bible that a blessing is promised for those who read it. It is the only book in the Bible that has that specific promise associated with it, the only one. And once you understand that what it is is a picture of God's saving grace throughout, throughout redemptive history, it will be fun for you to read. All right? So, because it talks about the struggle. I mean, how many, you know, one of the great biggest movies events that every time they do a movie about this particular subject, it goes crazy at the box office. What, what movie type do we see? Huh? The Antichrist, demons, foul spirits, all of this stuff. Anytime you do a dark movie, it goes off the charts. Why? Because there's this fascination about the occult, about the spiritual. And these weird, almost on equal footing competition and conflict between Lucifer and God anesthetizes us as Christians from the truth of what it is. God has no equal. He has no uh, contemporary. He has no anything. Lucifer is created and does the exact bidding of God without exception. Even the enmity between us and him is God-induced. Did you know that? Go back, to the, go back to the curse. And I, God speaking, will put enmity between you and the serpent. Lucifer is nothing more, according to Isaiah, than God's plaything. We give the dark forces way too much power in our thinking. Way. I think I'm teaching your lesson today. 
I'll just shut right up. How's that? I thought so. Yes, sir. Speaking to the microphone. Well, you're actually talking about a monstrous topic. The question was, it does not that move into the topic of God is the creator of all that's good and the creator of all that's bad. And the idea being that there's been a wrestling with that for a lot of a lot of years. A lot of people have had a struggle with that. Did God create Lucifer to create a fall? I hold the position that he did. Did. D-I-D. It doesn't mean that God created evil. That, God, that means that God created an avenue by which evil could come. Because if you think about it, without that avenue, there was no option. There's no option. Adam and Eve don't have an option without a Lucifer. So I don't, I don't want to blow you guys out of the water with all of that. But those are some concepts that, that wouldn't... I don't, God, and, and this is where, there's always been the question of good and evil in theology, always. Where did it come from? How does it come about? And if you read Isaiah and you read what it says about, especially in Job, about Lucifer not being able to do anything outside of God's will, that opens up a whole lot of thought. So I'm not going to, I've come to that position after years and years of study. And it does not affect the way I understand God or Christianity at all. Some people, it does. So my uh, encouragement is just to spend some time studying it. Understand that there is nothing that can happen in all of creation that is separate from God's will. Nothing. Yes. Yes. Mike. I don't think it's on. Is the green light on? There you go. Um, I don't want to derail it or anything, but just a quick question. Is, and if it doesn't relate, then that's fine. But okay. is evil, I, I think I've heard teaching that evil's not a thing. It's like, God created, all that God created is good, but evil is just like the corrupting or the, the corrupting of a good thing or something. It's, it's almost like light. Darkness isn't really anything. It's just when you turn on light, there's light, and that, that then has a contrast in the darkness. It doesn't probably make sense, but right. <laughs> that's just a teaching I remember hearing that, yeah. that evil isn't exactly something that... Um, it's not like a thing, you know? It's like, yeah. it's yeah. almost like a corrupt thing. I can't put it into words very well. Yeah, I've heard some of uh, along that line, but I always go back to the idea that uh, evil in Scripture is always personified within a single entity somehow. Leviathan, Lucifer, the dragon, Pharaoh, the Antichrist, the, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar, um, um, Belshazzar, the king of Tyre, uh, Nimrod. So it's always specific. So I, I think that it is a force. I think that it is. I think it's that which raises his head to oppose God. Yes. 
a personal um, yeah. example of what evil is. What about the fallen nature of man? Once that occurred, by our very nature, we have an evil element in us. Yes. So that's universal, not specific. It is. And so what I mean by that is, is that I believe that evil is a thing. It's an actual corruption of what God has intended to be good. And so our fallen nature. So Lucifer can't create anything new. He's not a creator. All he can do is corrupt what, is, what has been declared good. Okay? So you can think of it however you want to. Is evil a thing? Is evil a force? I, I personally think it is. Have you ever walked into a room and just gone, ugh? Something is here that's not righteous. Okay, that's, that's a force. That's something that, that's tangible. If you've ever encountered a person that's demonized, if you've ever encountered a real demoniac, you will go, evil is a force. Guarantee you it will change your thoughts. So, um, anyway, uh, that's not the whole purpose of the class. That's a whole different story. We can have a conversation about that. I can teach a whole class on it if you want. Um, but uh, that's outside of our purview today. And so um, let's get back to schools of interpretation. Um, again, my point being is, is that Lucifer and Leviathan and the things that, that evil comes by are nothing more, are, are, are sovereignly overseen by God. Consider what is said about Jesus. And he was turned over according to the will of God. Everything that happened to Jesus was according to the will of God. Not just the will, but the eternal will. Prescribed from all eternity. So Jesus didn't, wasn't just turned over and then everything that happened after that was just kind of like some deistic approach where God stepped back and, and said, have at him. The flogging, the mocking, the, the statements on the cross, the decisions by Pontius Pilate, the Barabbas incident, the, uh, the, the chanting of the Pharisees, the purple robe, the scourging, the crown of thorns, all of that was sovereignly willed by an, by an almighty God. That's exactly right. So, and it all played into God's plan. It all, even, um, what's his name? Why can't I think of his name? Judas. <laughs> My gosh, even Judas, what Judas did was according to God's plan. And it promoted God's plan. Okay, so I'll leave it there. Schools of interpretation. You got notes. There's a little diagram on there. I've got about 30, 25 minutes to try and work this up. It's really not that difficult to, to go over, but let's do an introduction real quick. I've left you a space on your notes. I'll go a little bit rapidly if you guys just get... Start getting writer's cramp or something, just raise your hand and I'll slow down a little bit. Um, I'll try to get through as many of these as I can today, but uh, these are schools of interpretive thought. 
Um, since its canonization, the church has struggled to understand the book of Revelation, especially chapters 6 through 22. I would say chapters 4 through 22. Okay? And some of the statements that were made here earlier are, uh, reveal the truth of that. I don't read Revelation because it's daunting. Because I don't have a hermeneutic to put everything into. Right? So, welcome to biblical theology because the church historically has had that same issue. Over time, there has emerged, because of this, four main schools of interpretation. There's the Praetorist. Praetor, Praetorist. There is the historicism, there's historicism, there is futurism, and there's idealism. Okay, these are the four schools of thought. Okay? Now, more recently, you may read books where you hear something called Historical, redemptive, or eclectic. G.K. Beale writes about it in his book. Um, and what that is is basically a composite of all of those. And I will tell you this, that there are elements in each of these that, that, that bleed over into the others. Okay, It's just the way it is. But these are the four main schools. Generally speaking, just to give us an overview... Uh, historicism and idealism agree that Revelation symbolizes the span of time between Christ's ascension and his future return. Okay? So historicism and idealism understand Revelation to include all of redemptive history applied through the finished work of Christ at his incarnation until his second coming. Okay? There are, however, considerable differences on the specific interpretation of the various visions and their relationship to each other. So even though there's commonality, there's distinct differences. On the other hand, futurism and praetorism agree that Revelations focuses on a more limited time period. And I would venture to say that most evangelical Christians in America are futurists. Okay? They either, this period of time is either immediately preceding Christ's second coming in the future, or immediately following John's writing of the book, Praetorism. The schools differ, however, considerably in the way they interpret the various symbols in the book. These three, Praetorism, Historicism, and Futurism, attempt to draw one-on-one -on -one symbolical equations. The Antichrist spoken of in Revelation must be so-and-so. Okay? The locust swarm in Revelation must be attack helicopters. Okay? 
right? The melting of people's eyes must be a nuclear explosion, okay? That's the one-on-one that these three draw, okay? Idealism, on the other hand, understands the symbols to represent a more abstract concept that may find expression in a variety of particulars without being limited to one, okay? I've been an idealist for years before I even knew what it was. Because I saw the spirit of Antichrist throughout the Old Testament. Just in my own readings. Yes. Uh, Believe it or not, one just recently died. I put two L's on there. No. Um, would it be associated with postmillennialism? Yeah. Would Praetorists be associated with postmillennialism is, is the question. Um, that's an interesting statement. Uh, yes. Uh, it would. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, there's still doubt about where R.C. Sproul actually fell in this whole thing, but a lot of people that were close to him said that he died a Praetorist, that he kept vacillating between Praetorism and Amillennialism, and he wasn't sure which one to go to. So, it's all right. He didn't go to hell because of it. Honest. All right, let's talk about Praetorism. We'll start out with Praetorism. I've got a few more minutes, and we can cover some of these schools. Praetorism. What does praetorism mean? Anybody know? Huh? Close. Means past. It refers to things that have occurred in the past. And on your timeline, and I'll draw it for you when we get through with this, but um, praetorists are either amillennialists or postmillennialists. But doesn't really matter about their position on the millennium. Praetorists hold that the majority of Revelation, now this is the key, they hold that the majority of Revelation, based on Matthew 24 and some other passages of scripture was fulfilled either at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century depending on who you read praetorists typically equate the beast in Revelation as one of two ways they either understand it as apostate Jerusalem Or they understand it as the Roman Empire. Okay? Now, why is Jerusalem considered the, uh, the, uh, the Babylon of Revelation? Why would you consider Jerusalem to be the seat of the Babylon? Why would praetorists assume that? Nobody... 
Bing, 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 bing. That's right, because it, they, they were anti-Christ in that they rejected the Messiah. Okay? Thus, oh, a paramount importance in this particular one is the view in Revelation, uh, uh, to this view is Revelation's promises that the enemies then per- persecuting the Christians would soon be brought to justice by God's intervention. And that's keyed on two specific passages of Scripture, um, which says that his return is uh, soon, and at the end of Revelation where it says everything is at hand. So they take those two passages of Scripture, which bracket Revelation, and they say these things within this context must be happening soon. Okay. Concerning this, then, because uh, so then Revelation one through nineteen concerns the struggle of the first century church and God's intimate or um, intimate, imminent intervention. Praetors, because of this, hold that only chapters 20 through 22 concern us or the distant future. Okay, so Revelation is largely irrelevant to you and I because it's all been fulfilled. All right. The millennial then is understood uh, as the entire church age between Christ's ascension and his return or the final phase of the church age in which the church will flourish and Christ's kingdom advance through widespread conversion and cultural transformation. All right? Yes. Sounds like, no, it actually sounds like uh, premillennialism. It actually sounds like, uh, the question was, is Bethel's theology with regards to eschatology based on uh, some of the things that they teach that we're looking forward to a golden age where we reign and rule with Christ, right? Is that, did I sum up that correctly? Before Christ's return or after? Okay, that's post-millennialism. Oh, then it's replacement. Uh, that's... Okay, well... Okay, so they... Yeah, so they have, a, they have an eclectic understanding. They're post-millennialists with dominion, dominion theology. Under uh, pre uh, post post millennial, it's uh, it can be praetorist, but it can also be dispensational. It's probably dispensational since they're living in America, right? So, um, and it's probably historical dispensationalism. I don't know. I haven't really sat down and thought about it. I'm just spitballing on this. I've never listened to the way Bethel teaches eschatology, so I don't really know. Um, 
So they take literally um, the, the concepts of uh, the, the phrases in Revelation that these things must take place soon, and at the end of the Revelation, the time is at hand. So they understand that to be. So basically, the Praetor's view looks like this. Jesus' second coming, Jesus' first coming, incarnation, timeline of redemption, second coming, right? The Praetorist understands that revelation affects roughly this time here. And then there's a ginormous gap before, depending on what, what else they understand, Revelation 20 through 22 is over here somewhere. It's future. Uh, they, a lot of it is with Revelation 24. They equate a lot of that as being a direct statement to uh, the Roman sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. I mean, there's, it's a very, very spe- specific and articulate theology. And it's, it can be somewhat compelling in some of its statements. Um, I'm not poo-pooing it out, out of hand. I'm just saying that the, the bad side of this is it makes us, from this time to this time here, Revelation is now irrelevant. Why even read it? Because it's a historical book. It only has to do with, you know, Rome and the sacking of Jerusalem and, and uh, all of that. So if it's already fulfilled, it doesn't really pertain to us. Um, this would either be 70 A.D., where we'll call it fulfillment, Either 70 A.D. here, fall of Jerusalem, or right around here, 5th uh, fifth or 6th century, I don't remember which, uh, when, when uh, Roman Empire was sacked and basically knocked out. So it's either it's A.D. 70 or, or the 5th or 6th century. It depends on, um, I don't remember when Roman, Rome was sacked. I can't remember. But it depends on how you understand which, which Praetorist book you read, depending on who they equate Babylon with. If it's Israel it's from, or Jerusalem, it's 70 AD. If it's Rome, then it's from the 5th century on. Yes? So what I'm saying is that you're taking Jewish names and then the That's correct. So it sounds like it's uh, Praetorism combining the two in one. It might be. It's very possible. A lot of these bleed over into each other. They actually do. So a lot of these, and this is what I wanted to bring us back to, a lot of the way you read Revelation with regards to this particular school of interpretation or these four schools of interpretation is completely based on the way you understand the hermeneutic of the Bible. And that question actually demonstrates that. They, they understand, well, what did you say exactly again, Bob?
Okay, so he said that that uh, the idea of the praetorism might be based on the pre uh, pre millennial pre or a dispensational hermeneutic. Yeah, well, the way I understand it is that the hermeneutic produces the interpretation. So you're, the way you understand Scripture as a whole is going to produce how you understand Revelation. Okay? And, and so does this praetorism fall under the hermeneutic of dispensationalism? It, it can, yeah. It probably does. But it also fall, it can fall under all millennialism or idealism. Depending on, you know, I mean, uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, if he in fact was a praetorist, was a nonmillennialist as far as I know, and was a, a covenant theologian, staunch covenant theologian. So he held to a covenant hermeneutic. So um, there are strengths to the praetorist view. Interestingly enough, every one of the messages in chapter 2 through 3 containing... Uh, okay, here it is. The strongest evidence for praetorism has to do with the seven churches. Okay. Every one of the messages in chapters 2 through two, uh, two, 3 concerning um, those churches details... Um, gives details specific to those first century churches uh, and allusions to the environment of the cities in which they existed, okay? So they understand that the letters to the churches were directly to those seven specific churches. As a symbolicist, as a person that understands something different, I, have, I hold a different view. But they say that these are directly given to the, to the seven churches, and they make some correlations that are pretty compelling, and here they are. Uh, the problems associated with each message uh, continues to be in focus throughout the rest of the book. And I'm doing this because this actually lends itself to the position that I hold, and I'll show you why next week probably. For example... The references in 2.9 and 3.9 to those who say that they are Jews and are not are directly connected to the true, to true Israel in Revelation chapter 7. The Satan's throne in, to the, uh, with regards to the churches in 2.13 is connected to the dragon in 12.9. The martyrdom in 2.10 and 13 is linked with the martyrdom in chapters 6, 11, 13, 17, and 20. The promise of the tree of life in 2.7 is connected to the tree of life in 22.2. Jezebel in 2.20-22 is connected to the harlot in chapter 17. Okay? So through these and other connections, it's clear that the whole book, not just chapters 2 through 3, addresses the problems and the struggles of the seven churches in the first century. That is true. However, this is also a fundamental reason to interpret Revelation according to the idealist viewpoint. Do you know why? Because if you understand some eschatological symbology, what does the number 7 stand for? Anybody want to take a swing? 
completion. Seven churches, the complete church. And we see throughout Revelation the same issues being brought over and over again because it is the struggle of the church throughout redemptive history. Okay? All right, I got to stop. Next week we'll pick up historicism. All right? Any quick questions? It's a little bit technical, but this is this is how people understand revelation. When I get to uh, idealism, which is the what we hold to, you'll understand what I just said with regards to how the churches recur. The theme of churches recur. Yes. The idealism is the complete church. Praetorists understand that this has to do with seven specific churches in that time frame, first century. I'm, I, it can't. I, I say it does. That, that's not the... Pr- what you just said is what I hold to. It can be, it's specific to the first century, but it is because it's the number seven. It has to do with the church as a whole. It indicates and has a prophetic significance for the church throughout the salvific timeline, through redemptive history. So that's the idealist, the recurring situation. Praetorists don't hold to that. They believe that it only concerns first century. And it was fulfilled when either Jerusalem fell or, or, or those churches ceased to exist. Okay? All right, thus endeth the lesson for today.